Hello, and welcome to Not a Couple, a Will and Grace podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm Tess. And this week we are on season six, episode three, Home Court Disadvantage. <laughs> this was a pretty great episode for us. We yeah. were pretty thrilled with it. We enjoyed ourselves watching it. Um, yeah. Felt a little personally attacked at times. A little bit. But also there were some thrilling plot twists that we did not see coming. Indeed. Um, Abba um, was kind of there. Will's mom was there. She was definitely there. Karen was definitely, definitely there. Karen was there. Some anti-Semitism was there. Let's talk about that. Yeah, but let's do the episode description first. Sure. Um, So, home court disadvantage. Karen invites Grace and Leo to play tennis at her exclusive club, but her fierce playing style drives Grace away. No, that's not what happens at all. Oh, we were doing so good with the episode description. I know, where they were like, actually, what the episode was about, instead of like some vague contrived thing that maybe was the premise in the writer's room. There's a plot twist built into the episode because the description is so far off. Right. So we'll get to the second plot of the episode later on in the episode, since we were already planning on talking about it second. Tess, maybe we can give our listeners a better description of what's going on here. Sure. So in this episode... Grace is invited to Karen's country club to play tennis. Leo is not invited, and when Leo appears, Karen says, Oh, I thought it was just going to be the two of us. And when Grace eventually sort of pushes Karen for additional information, Karen reveals that she doesn't like Leo, which is perhaps the most satisfying thing to ever happen to us since Leo's introduction. And it's such a wonderful moment that is made eternally frustrating by the fact that, like, for whatever reason, Will and Grace decides to go for broke on, like, Karen's Country Club being for whites only. Right. <laughs> like, it like really, really leaning into it. It just really doubles down on how Jews aren't allowed at this country club. Right. And, like, we've had episodes like this before. Like, I feel like there was legitimately an episode of Will and Grace set at the country club where there was a recurring plot line about how Bendisette was only sort of allowed in. Right. And so, like, I think there were a few jokes there about how Bed and, and Grace were sort of an anomaly there. Because they right. were a black man and a, a Jewish woman. But, so this one, kind of, yeah, it kind of goes for broke. It's It starts off as what seems like it might be, like, playfully anti-Semitic. And, and like, then a throwaway it, line. And then it just, like, kind of just, like, bangs it out, man. Like, like at least in that early episode where it's Ben set and Grace at the country club, like, that's the plot of the episode. Right. The plot is based around how, like, there is some slight not, there's, like, some slight racial undertones about a black man and a Jewish woman right. at this all-white wealthy country club. Right. This is just, like, throwing in random, like, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. Right. It's just peppering in the fact no that they're not okay <laughs> with Jews. Like, throughout the entire... I got, like, there's a bit where Grace is like, oh, I'm a wealthy Irish woman named Kelly O'Malley or some right. shit. Like, and there's a moment where she's like, oh, I want more of these bagel chips. But, you know, like a white lady would. Right. Or like, whatever she says. Yeah, like, it's super weird. And, like, then she, like, starts talking about, like, a Jewish summer camp she attended. And Karen's like, honey, could you, like, keep it down? And it's just like, what, what the? Okay. It's so unnecessary. And this might be a little bit of, like, a timely joke. Like, maybe in 2003 when this episode aired... Um, Nazis were not a thing anymore, and so it was, like, genuinely, like, oh, maybe we're allowed to poke fun at the Jews again. Um, Right. But now Nazis are a thing again, so I'm just gonna go with, let's flush that one down the toilet. Those jokes aged like milk, and I didn't like it. I don't really want to get into this on the podcast, per se, but I feel like in white comedy, as a white person... You're white? I know, shocking. (laughs) 
I this feel just like, in listeners. For those of you who've been picturing wonderful people of color, we are both white, and I'm sorry. I feel like in white comedy, there's like a subset of like people who are also white who were allowed, quote unquote, allowed to make fun of because they're slightly off white. Yeah, it's like an accru. Yes, you know category. So like you know like stereotypically Irish people, stereotypically Italian people, you know the Jews, people who speak Spanglish, uh-huh. like and. Some of those people can be made fun of because those aren't real racial categories or ethnic right. categories that exist anymore. But They're caricatures. And some of them are real people. Right. And then there's Jewish folks who right. genuinely have suffered thousands of years of anti-Semitism and it's not funny. Right. But yes, at one point in time, Irish need not apply. So like discrimination. Oh, that's like, yeah, it's a thing that like, it kind of drives me nuts, especially in my own family, Uh because my family of mostly Irish white people think that they can get away with being like playfully anti-Semitic or playfully racist. And I'm like, it's not playful because once upon a time we were also discriminated against. That means that we're like, hmm, no one's doing that to us anymore. We shouldn't join the club with the people who used to do it to us. (laughs) We should like still be like, hey, fuck you guys. And you know, hang out with the people who are still being discriminated against. And there's a whole discussion to be had about assimilation and how that changes the makeup of who gets considered white. And you know what? Like not, I don't care. I care a lot. But maybe I care too much, and we need to move on yes. to other parts of this podcast. But in summation, the anti-Semitism is liberal throughout this episode. And, and by liberal, you mean conservative. It's extremely conservative. But there's a liberal amount of it, and we're not into it. And it was yeah. weird. It's especially frustrating because, as we mentioned before, this is such a good episode. Yes. It's genuinely funny. It, again, makes Leo the butt of the joke. Uh-huh. Beverly Leslie's there, and I didn't even throw up. Like, that's how good of an episode it is. Beverly Leslie is used very well. It seems like there was probably a Beverly Leslie sequence that we wouldn't have liked that got left in the cutting room floor. And for that, we are grateful. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's predicated on this idea that Karen doesn't like Leo. Yes. Which, as you know from listening, we also do not like Leo. We are with Karen 100% here. Right. But Karen has never expressed this before, so it's genuinely a revelation. It's not like Grace has been, like, bopping around and, like, you know, clearly Karen has hated Leo. Right. Karen has liked Leo about as much as she likes anyone else. Right. But it's just, she's never made that these feelings of dislike clear. Mm-hmm. Um, although, thinking back on it, last episode she did let her dog pee and shit in Leo's apartment, so that True. might have been a sign. Um, but... So, yeah, she's just, uh, she just, you know, she tells Grace, like, I don't find him charming, and uh, he does make me laugh. I, yeah. And, honestly, those are all very fair critiques of mm-hmm. Leo. He's not especially charming. I don't personally find him funny either. And, yeah, I just, it's really great for me that someone on the show finally fucking said it. Yes. And it's it's so fascinating because the rest of the episode doesn't really rebut the argument. No. Like, it's so common on shows where, like, a character doesn't like a character, but then they have a misadventure for the episode, and then they're like, I begrudgingly respect you. Like, no, Karen does not move. No. She is locked in. She agrees to, like, metaphorically sign Leo's yearbook. Yes. Like, all the other people in high school who signed Leo's yearbook because he clearly bullied them into doing it. Or something. Like, okay, so let's let's give him some context for that. So essentially... Leo discovers that Karen doesn't like him because uh-huh. Grace tells him. And he pretends like he's totally chill with this, which would be an adult response. Right, of course. But then he's Leo. So he, in the next scene, immediately melts down and shows up at this country club where, again, Jews are not welcome, and <laughs> brings his high school year 
paperwork to prove to Karen that he is inherently likable because of so many people who signed it. And then also brings, like, clips from the school newspaper about a comedy show he did. And here's the thing. Let's talk about what he quotes in his yearbook. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of, you rock, don't ever change. Yeah. Which, let me tell you, is the thing I wrote for people who I thought did not, in fact, rock and desperately wished would change a lot. But I didn't want to be rude to them in their yearbook. Or the people where you were like, I think I know your name, but I don't want to write it down. Yeah, the people who are like, this guy, like, Yeah, let me look for us in the yearbook so I can sign next to your picture. Uh You say, frantically flipping through trying to figure out who this person is. Let me find a space to to sign it while you look to see who, like, who... How they were addressed by right. other people. And, like, we didn't like, go to a big high school, but, like, I feel like our high school was very, like, like, not clicky, but, like, just, like, there were definitely, like, clubs. Like, you know, like, in Mean Girls, where, like, there's the tables where everyone sits? You're like, describing clicks. Yeah, I'm describing a click. But, like, not, like, <laughs> click clicks. They were, like, loose clicks, but they were clearly still clicks. If I say clicks any more times, we're gonna, I don't know. Say crack again. Say crack again. <laughs> crack. Um... But, like, there was legitimately, like, people who would, like, oh, sort of overlap with your clique or your friend group. And so then you were expected to, like, sign their yearbook and, like, be nice. And... The thing you're describing is acquaintances. We, yes. In high school, the sort of people we ran with, you meant a lot of acquaintances. Because yeah. we were, like, there was, like, the larger subgroup of people who took AP classes. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of broke down by, like, the artsy smart kids and the yeah. smart kids who were really into music yeah, exactly. and stuff. I feel like because of the number of people we had, for whatever reason, like, we had, weirdly, a lot of acquaintances. Yeah. Because there was a lot of those weird overlaps. Right. Like, we... In high school, Matthew and I together did choir and um, also theater and also academic decathlon. Mm -hmm. And then you were in band for a while. So, like, it makes sense that we had a lot of overlap because there were different groups of people who we hung out with there that weren't always part of our main, like, posse. Right. But, yeah, so, but there, those are the people who you sign, you rock, never change Mm -hmm. in their yearbook. And so, clearly, this to me indicates not that Leo was well-liked in high school, but that he was... Acquainted with a lot of people. Right. Which, whoop-de-fucking-do, so was I. That doesn't mean anybody in high school liked me. Well, and he shared a similar level of, you need to like me or else. Right. Yeah, so it just, it seems like there was, like, a desperate need for approval that Mm -hmm. Leo had in high school that is being carried into the present. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's very funny to me, because (laughs) I hate him. Yes. It was very, very cathartic to watch Karen make... Grace and Leo make fools of themselves right. in this episode. And it's also kind of especially funny because while the episode doesn't really hit on this in like a very obvious way, it sort of kind of implies that Grace doesn't like Leo all that much either. Right. Because when she's trying to make a, a counter argument for all the points Karen makes, she's she like... She has nothing. She's like, he, he's funny. T- tell, tell her about the, the carrot thing you did at the, the, the grocery store the other day. And it's it's like the lamest dad joke. And she's clearly faking, like being amused by it. Like, right. It's like the the first like chink in the armor of Grace and Leo. Right. And the show is seeming to be fine with that. It sort of seems a little bit like the show is glossing past it because I know that there's some stuff that happens later in the season that mm-hmm. that might that affects it. That might be like a, a butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. That all began with Karen doesn't like Leo. Right. But yeah, it's it's really satisfying to see. And mm-hmm. it's also really satisfying that the conclusion isn't Karen learns to love Leo. Mm-hmm. It's Karen begrudgingly accepts that she will pretend to like Leo whenever they're forced to interact. Right. Well, I love that that's all that Leo wants 
too. Right. He like, doesn't... It's, it's just so shallow of him. Right. He doesn't care if one of his wife's closest friends actually likes him, mm-hmm. which to me is, again, a giant red flag. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that you need to be best friends with your partner's best friend. Mm-hmm. But you need to be more than your book acquaintances. Right. You need to be able to, like, accept that you might be doing holidays Mm -hmm. and doing, like, shit together for a long time. And if you can't, you're not with the right person. Right. Because that's who they consider their, like, family. But Leo doesn't have to worry about that because Leo is genuinely absent a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Like, he is building up a relationship where he is allowed to not be present right for many of these important events with the friends and family you know right. like this whole episode speaks so many volumes about the undercurrent of decay in leo mm-hmm. and grace's marriage and like it's so exciting to me because mm-hmm. you know and i know but i know specifically when yes. this marriage implodes yes of course and so it, it's it's fun to, like, gather these eggs in a basket <laughs> because I hate Leo so much that it's just, like, my spiteful collection. I'm like, <laughs> yes. Wow. I'm so glad that the episode was so enjoyable for you in that way. It was nice that way, yes. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Will and Jack and, in this episode, Will's mom. Oh, Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia, indeed. Here we go again. This episode should have just been called Mamma Mia, frankly. Frankly, that would have been a better title. Um, Blythe Danner is here again. She is amazing. As often she is. I forget this being the person watching the show in kind of this like back and forth way with the revival. But we've only seen Blythe Danner in the original series twice prior. Mm-hmm. Um, she's an off-screen presence for most of the season or the series, but she appears in the Thanksgiving episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in the episode most recently in season four, where we discover that she and Will's dad are deciding to get divorced. Yes. So this is our first check-in on her post-divorce. Mm-hmm. It's clearly been more than a year. And she ain't doing well. She's not doing great. It's kind of sad. It's uh, one of the defining characteristics of Will's mother as a character is her in- intense commitment to waspish mm-hmm. Like, appearances? Like, you call it sparkle motion, except it's wasp. It's kind of like sparkle stability, sparkle freeze. It's like this intense commitment to... Sparkle stasis. Sparkle stasis, yes. Where she's just putting on, like, an appearance and, Mm -hmm. like, has, like, a public persona. Like, she's some sort of celebrity in Mm -hmm. her neighborhood. Right. And when Will goes to visit, this has completely collapsed. Right. Like, she's just, like, in the, like, drawing room or the conservatory in the dark... I don't think she's actually wearing sweatpants, but she's morally, she, she's metaphorically like, wearing sweatpants. Metaphorically wearing sweatpants. She's wearing like, like some sort of like fancy harem pants. Like they're <laughs> yes. clearly made out of like a hundred percent Arabian cotton or whatever right. the fuck. But they're they're sweatpants. She doesn't respond when he calls out for her because she's kind of like, oh, I was sitting here in the dark and I was thinking. That you'd find me eventually. <laughs> and then she's <laughs> drinking Chardonnay and Will is scandalized. Not because she's drinking Chardonnay. Right. But because she's just drinking it out of a wine glass. Rather and than, in the dark. Rather than hiding it in a coffee cup in the bathroom. Right, right. That's, that's how you know that your wasp mom is in trouble. If she's drinking the Chardonnay out of an actual glass. Right, she's just out in the open drinking that Chardonnay oh. instead of problem drinking it in the bathroom. Yeah. You gotta get that woman to mama me a well, step! It seemed like there was a certain, like, you know, like the Weasley clock where the hands all point at different things? Uh-huh. It seemed like there was a uh, Blythe Danner clock of, like, what time it is and what kind of receptacle you're putting your Chardonnay in. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's really funny. 
Yes. It's, I mean, like, it's sad. Don't get me wrong. Like, oh, it's it's clearly very sad. Will's mom is crazy depressed. But also, Blythe Danner is, like, chewing the scenery. Oh, yeah. And it's just delicious to watch her have so much fun with it. The comparisons to Grey Garden are numerous and well-deserved. Yes, like, literally, like... It, it's perfect. It's a perfect and apt comparison. Like, if Will was actually trapped in that house, like, they would literally be doing Grey Gardens right now. Yeah. Where, like, Will is... I don't want to say Will is Drew Barrymore, but, like, Will is Drew Barrymore. <laughs> like, whatever. We'll just we'll just focus on the HBO show and not actual Grey Gardens. <laughs> um, but, like, it's really sad and really funny. And Will kind of feels obligated to help her because he's like, wow, my mom's super depressed. And as we all know, I'm a super absent child. So, like, right. this is the first time I've noticed how depressed my mom is in, in like a, a year. year. But at <laughs> the same time, Will is also such an absent child that he has pre-purchased tickets to Mamma Mia so that he has a very hard time yeah. when he must leave. And I gotta say, like... Brilliant. This... Blythe is not my mother in any way. I love my mother. My mother is not a wasp. My mother... Your mother is about as close to a wasp as you can get when you're a Catholic. Yeah, though. but she's not an alcoholic and she's not divorced. That you know of. Well... <laughs> but... I could see myself deciding to build in a hard stop for a visit... Of this sort, where like you know, like you know, it's just gonna be bad. You know that there's gonna be a lot of like complaining about this or that. You know, you're going to have to hear about your father's whore the whole time. Right, of course. Um, and I don't have quite that relationship with my mother at this point, but it's it it could happen. You know, it introduced to me an interesting idea because something. Now it's personal story time with Tess. Something <laughs> I'm working on in therapy is setting up more healthy boundaries mm-hmm. with my family. And to me, this sort of seemed like it's not perhaps the healthiest way to do it, but installing a hard stop in mm-hmm. visit time with my family could be very useful for me. Yes, it's kind of like a, 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 a good boundary and bad boundary at the same time because Will is establishing that he has his own life and he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to make this visit with his mom and there's a hard stop. But he's also keeping the hard stop kind of a secret, and he's right. using subterfuge. He's not just saying, Mom, I can really only visit for two hours, and right. that's just it. Instead, he's going, Mom, I, I can visit, but I have these tickets for Mamma Mia at, at 8, and, right. and I really got to be in my seat, because if you miss the first five minutes, you've missed the whole thing. Right, of course. Like, there's not an actual communication or dialogue happening, which mm-hmm. is the problem. Yes. But on the other hand, Will is, as an adult who has a lot of complicated relationships with his parents, who are not abusive parents... But- Neglectful, but a little neglectful. Say. He's setting up strong boundaries so that he and his friend can visit and leave when they need to. Yes. Now, unfortunately, in this particular case, Jack they do there. leave. They do leave when they need to, but they leave with Blythe. Yes. <laughs> and, so, oh my goodness. So here's the thing. So, what is her actual name? On it's the show? Marilyn. Thank you. I always forget because I just think Blythe is the perfect name for her. It is though. Okay. So basically, Jack is there, and Jack. I think part of this is a little bit Jack wishing he and his mother had a better relationship. So true. We know that in the revival, they've kind of mended fences and become very close, but we don't see a lot of Jack's mother in the original Mm -hmm. series. She shows up once, he finally comes out to her, it's kind of awkward. Right. Um, So Jack sort of is there, touching Mm -hmm. the furniture while Blythe (laughs) Danner asks him not to. (laughs) And so he suggests that they bring her with Mm -hmm. to go see Mamma Mia. And I just want to take a brief moment to back up. If this is 2003, I know that tickets weren't like Hamilton hard to get, but I imagine it must be difficult to get a, a, a third ticket last minute in the yeah. same section. I mean, they probably wouldn't have been able to be in the same section. 
that's a bit of a, a hand-waving nest. But yeah. on the other hand, Will is a lawyer and probably has a lot of disposable income. Could be. So we're just going to wave right past that. Right. So basically, they suggest that they bring Marilyn to the show. Uh-huh. And she's interested once she learns that the characters who are singing aren't poor because she didn't care for Les Mis <laughs> because in real life, poor people never sing that much. Right. And I want to dispute that premise because poor people do sing that much. It's just hardly ever in unison. Right. So true. Not, and not in, like, five-part harmony. No. Or counterpoint. Usually, or French. Usually not quite in that high of a falsetto, either. Mm-hmm. Though sometimes, in Though my sometimes, car. Though sometimes, yes. Heart full of love sucks, John Mulaney. <laughs> um, and, of course, she loves it. Yes. So how could you not like Mamma Mia? Mamma Mia is perhaps the... I don't want to say it's the best musical of all time, because it's not. But it's the most universally appealing musical, yes. I feel like. I also feel like this this episode is kind of like a microcosm of how Mamma Mia was like a very gay idea to begin with, but has been completely co-opted yes. by post-middle aged straight women. Right, and recall, this is before the Meryl Streep adaptation. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of watching it in action as it's happening here. Yeah. But yes, so Vlad Stanner goes to Mamma Mia and comes home with the hat and the sweater mm-hmm. and the tote bag. Yep. And she's singing and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's great. It's great to see her happy and energized. That's the one thing that is really nice. I mean, you know, obviously Vlad Stanner is very depressed and like going through a reinvention of self. But in this episode alone, this is a really good reinvention. This is yeah. a very happy Marilyn we see. Yeah. You know, she's trying new things. Mm-hmm. She's spending time with her son. Yeah. Like, these are good, positive right. traits. All very, like, in general, trending towards positive things. Mm-hmm. She's discovered something new that she likes. Mm-hmm. Which, um, especially when your entire world has sort of been turned upside down because of a divorce or something to mm-hmm. that effect. Like, learning that there are things that you can enjoy that maybe you didn't even know about prior mm-hmm. to this big life-changing event. There cool. must be something there that wasn't there before. That's the rock music. Ah, rats. <laughs> um, and, and the episode doesn't, kind of like with the Karen plotline in reverse, it doesn't undercut that no. yet. But what it does do is it sets up kind of a fun cliffhanger by, again, Jack suggests when they get back to the house, like, Marilyn, why don't you just stay here with Will? Right. You have nothing to go back to in... Where, where did they live? Connecticut? Connecticut. You have nothing to go back to in Connecticut except your dark, sad house. Right. Why don't you just stay? And granted, again, Jack is sort of doing this thing where he's violating Will's boundaries mm-hmm. by not clearing this with him first before making the suggestion. But there's also the sort of, like, genuine, like, hopeful little boy in Jack mm-hmm. that you can kind of see where he's just like, oh, she's finally happy. Like, right. let her be happy, Will. Right. And so Will kind of... Is guilted into it, clearly. Yeah, he doesn't really want to agree to it, but then he he pulls Jack out in the hallway to be like, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to tell her that's not okay. Mm -hmm. And then he walks back in and she's like dusting his things and humming Fernando or something. (laughs) And it it is so nice to see her so back to her normal self again Mm -hmm. for like a moment that Will like can't bring himself to let to like tell her she has to leave. Yeah. And so like the the post-credit scene is him sort of like woefully updating his answering machine <laughs> message to be like, this, this is Will, Will and Will's mom. <laughs> and like, clearly we're being set up for disaster here. I mean, right. the, the setup of the episode is very clearly in the next episode, this will all go to shit and Will and his mother will fight and they'll have to have a real talk about boundaries. and Which is know. horrible for wasps. Right, of course. But for now, we're left in kind of this fun place where like, Will's life is being shaken up by like, this genuinely good plot point. Yeah. And it's something that 
I believe we talked about a little bit off mic is because the show is really so unsure sometimes about what to do with Will's mm-hmm. character that we get these very goofy and convoluted plots for him. Yeah. Whereas this one's a little bit more straight through. Yeah. Like, like if the show's the show isn't willing to get too romantic with Will at this time. Because, ooh, okay, scary. And it's not willing to deal with, like, a lot of, like, work plot lines because his work is really boring. Yes. But this is a way to flesh out a character that, with ways you've already developed, and it's not complicated. It's really simple. It's mm-hmm. At its heart, it's Will trying to build a relationship with his mother but still have boundaries. And that's a really relatable plot line, mm-hmm. especially for people who are in their... How old do you think these characters are now? Early 30s? Mid-30s? You know, it's hard to say because I believe somewhere last season they implied that Will was already 38. But yeah. the show seems to sort of change its mind about that a lot of the time. So. I mean, I know in the revival they've clearly de-aged the characters a little bit because they're only supposed to be in their 40s 11 years later, which is just... Wrong. Okay. Again, if he was supposed to be 38 in season five... Right. I mean, like... Clearly, the youngest the characters can be in the present day is, like, well, obviously, Karen is, like, 97. Karen is a timeless being. She but the be other three Lord. must be, like, 47, 48. Yeah, they would be at, pushing 50 at minimum. Yes. I mean, I'm sure next season or the season after, someone will have a 50th birthday that they pitch as a 30th birthday. You know, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, the nice thing is that we're getting this plot line, maybe for just two episodes, maybe for more. I don't know. You I know, do. probably. I do. Um, but it, it it's nice for Will to have his own little moment yeah. in his own little chair. Which Again, you, a different musical. Why do you keep going for Rogers <laughs> and Hammerstein? <laughs> no, stop going for the princesses. This is Abba. Abba is full of princesses. Abba is, frankly, it's also sort of, like, to me, very interesting that... The musical they go and see is a musical about a daughter and a mother who are so close that the daughter's father figure is sort of a mystery and remains one. Mm-hmm. And so to me... And really it's the perfect converse of their relationship. Right, exactly. Will and his mom are not especially close. Will has openly said he's much closer mm-hmm. to his father. Yep. Which, again, by wasp terms means, I don't know, they call twice a year or something? like. This is a great idea that I just had that I'm going to say live on air for the first time. Okay, great. Double bill... Mamma Mia and Chess. No. Moving let's, on. Let's make it happen. No, let's not make it happen. <laughs> chess is bad. I'm sorry. They tried and they failed. They tried and they failed. The winner takes it all. No, the but losers that's Mamma Mia. That's Mamma Mia. Now, now we're talking about chess. No, no, we're not talking about chess. No one is talking about <laughs> chess. Chess won't. Well, stop trying to make chess happen, okay? <laughs> chess isn't going to happen. I'm sorry. It's sort of like when people thought it was a cool idea to double bill La Boheme and Rent. Mm, that's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. Those are too similar. Yes. Chess and Mamma Mia are very different. Exactly. It's sort of like, you can see the thread of why you want to do it, but it's wrong. (laughs) And you need to just let it go. Let it go. God damn it, that's Disney. Let it go. (laughs) Why is it that in this episode where we could be making all these gorgeous ABBA jokes, we just keep deferring to Disney and Rodgers and Hammerstein? Haters gonna hate. Matthew literally just became the shrug emoji, like, <laughs> as a person. All right, everybody. I think that's all we have for this week. Tess, will you tell everyone where they can find us on the internet? Yes. If you want to tweet us your favorite ABBA song, you can find us at Not A Couple Show on Twitter. Um, but we also have an email address. It's notacouplepodcast at gmail.com where you can send us private messages. But please, no dick pics. We will be very upset if you do that. 
Um, but we're also on other places on the internet, like Tumblr and Facebook, and you can listen to this podcast, as I assume you already are, on one of three places, Podbean, Spotify, or iTunes. All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to this episode. We will be back next week to find out what Broadway musical Will and his mom are going to see next. (laughs) I'm Matthew. I'm Tuss. And this has been Not a Couple. Bye-bye. This episode of Not a Couple was recorded in front of a live studio audience of one cat. Hi, Eliza. Beautiful singing voice. This episode of Not a Couple was brought to you by Mamma Mia. It's not the only place the Venn diagram between gay men and their straight mothers intersect, but it's the best one.